Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Native American History. This is Samantha Williams, one of your hosts, and today we're joined by Jacqueline Emery, editor of Recovering Native American Writings in the Boarding School Press, which is published by the University of Nebraska Press. This book is the first comprehensive collection of Native American writings published in boarding school newspapers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and speaks to the complexity of Native people's experiences at these institutions. Dr. Emery is an assistant professor of English at SUNY Old Westbury in New York, where she teaches courses on Native American literature, women's literature, and literature across cultures. Jacqueline, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your research interests and your background? Sure. So I earned my PhD in English at Temple University, and my book builds on my dissertation, Writing Against Erasure, Native American Boarding School Students in the Periodical Press. Um, In addition to the Uh, scholarship and teaching interests you mentioned. I also specialize in periodical studies, and I've published essays in American periodicals and Legacy, a Journal of American Women Writers. Excellent. Now, before we dig too far into the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Native American boarding school system in the United States, just to give us some context for the writings that you examine? Absolutely. So most of the writings in the collection first appeared in newspapers that were published at off-reservation boarding schools. Um, In 1878, Hampton admitted its first class of Native Americans. These were newly released prisoners of war from Fort Marion in St. Augustine, Florida. And one year later, in 1879, Richard Henry Pratt founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, which became the prototype for federal off-reservation boarding schools across the U.S. And the aim of these schools was largely the same, uh, to provide Native American students with the teachings of civilization in the form of a practical vocational education. And so um, the first priority was to teach Native students how to speak, read, and write in English. And after uh, getting that uh, academic groundwork, they began to study subjects like math and geography and U.S. history. At the same time, uh, they were doing um, vocational work, uh, performing manual labor, and some students uh, gained experience working in the printing shops at these schools. And those are some of the students that you profile in your book, Who's Writing to Profile. Excellent. So, so your work focuses, like you said, specifically on the newspapers that, are, that were produced at, at these schools by Native students. So can you talk a little bit about what types of writings were published in these newspapers and why boarding school officials permitted or even encouraged these publications? And, you know, sort of a related question, what sort of latitude did students have in publishing what they wanted? So the collection features student-authored texts in a variety of genres, from personal letters and autobiographical essays to short stories. Um, 
it also features editorials written by students who edited newspapers like um, the School News, which was published at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, and the Holoqua, which was published at the Seneca Indian School in what is now Oklahoma. It's difficult to say definitively <laughs> to mm -hmm. what extent students had latitude in terms sure. of what they were publishing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, it's very likely that all of the student edited newspapers were subject to strict editorial control and oversight. Um, and certainly the white edited newspapers were. My sense is that boarding school authorities encourage students to publish their writings in these newspapers and encourage them to edit uh, their own newspapers in order to demonstrate the success of their educational programs mm -hmm. um, because uh, the student writings themselves kind of served as evidence that the um, the educational experiments were assimilating Native Americans. But as I argue in the book, students use their English literacy in multiple ways, and they use these newspapers uh, not only to um, espouse the, the assimilationist rhetoric of the schools and the dominant culture more broadly, but in the mm -hmm. service of Native communities and, and as a form of self-expression. Oh, that's interesting. So that's, you know, related to another question that I had about, you know, how widely these publications were read. And, you know, I realize it, it depends, you know, on the publication, on the location, on the community. But, you know, while administrators may have wanted them to serve as sort of propaganda or proof mm -hmm. that their programs were working, I mean, it seems that they also were reaching out to other students, other members of indigenous nations. So, I mean, do you have a, a sense of who the audiences were for the students and who they were reaching? So I've found um, evidence in the quarterly journey, journal of the Society of American Indians that folks who were reading that uh, organ of the Society of American Indians were reading boarding school newspapers so the editors and readers of that very prominent native edited periodical um, were reading boarding school newspapers and often showcasing them in the pages of the quarterly journal or uh, as it was later renamed the American Indian Magazine. Um, from time to time in the student edited newspapers, there will appear um, uh, references to other student-edited newspapers. For example, in the Holoqua, the editors note um, that they've read the school news, which was published at the Carlisle Indian School. So okay. part of my purpose in the book is to, is to not only make these uh, writings available and accessible, but also to start to suggest that there was a, a larger um, periodical network and um, they were the editors of these um, uh, native periodicals, specifically at the boarding school, but then also like the quarterly journal. They were reading each other's newspapers. 
Interesting. So they're circulating, you know, amongst the different school editorial boards and newspaper um, groups. Mm -hmm. Do you, did you find any evidence of them planning together or, you know, critiquing or anything like that? Not critiquing. It's usually praising, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which I think, you know, um, is wonderful in itself. Uh, to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say that I, that I, as a researcher, I've paid more attention to reference cross references between and among the student edited newspapers than I have say in the white editor edited Carlisle uh, Indian schools, Indian helper and any references it makes to um, student edited newspapers. Okay. Okay. I'd be surprised if there were that many, I mean, certainly in the Carlisle papers, there are references from time to time to the school news, mm-hmm. but um, I haven't found any references to other student-edited new boarding school newspapers. Okay, okay. And I'm wondering what, you know, in reviewing these writings, you know, what what did they teach you and what can they teach those of us who've read the book or who are going to read the book about students' boarding school experiences, you know, in terms of assimilationist practices or indigenous responses? I mean, what, what did you learn and, and what will your readers learn from this collection? Well, when I started this project, it was, um, you know, again, it, I, I, I'm building on my dissertation. And so there was a chapter in my dissertation on talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students, the student edited newspaper at Hampton, um, Hampton Institute. Mm-hmm. And at the very beginnings of, of that research, uh, that stage of my research, I, when I would come across references to boarding school newspapers, they were usually there weren't that many, but when yeah. I did find them, they were often talking about, uh, they categorized them and sort of wrote them off as these assimilationist mouthpieces mm. uh, for school authorities like Pratt, like Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole, and sometimes uh, there would be a mention of a student edited newspaper like Talks and Thoughts, but it too was lumped. Uh, together with these, with the white edited newspapers. Okay. Um, and so they're all kind of talked about as if they're, you know, as if the students themselves, the student writers are merely mouthpieces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, espousing the, the assimilationist rhetoric of the boarding schools themselves. And so I wanted to see if <laughs> I had the same reading mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there are there are certainly students whose writings are more in line with the assimilationist discourse of the period. Um, but there are other writings that um, I see making subtle challenges to that discourse, like the discourse mm-hmm. of the vanishing Indian or mm-hmm. um, the, the notion that uh, Native Americans are uncivilized savages. Um, and so the students are, are taking some of this rhetoric and turning it on its head and, and you know, to use Frederick Hoxie's phrase, talking back mm-hmm. to, to their, um, to their readers. And so my hope is that, uh, this collection will give, um, readers 
uh, deeper insight into the complicated, complex experiences of these student writers mm-hmm. um, and other Native American public intellectuals who published their writings in the boarding school press. Now, were there any specific pieces of writing that really stood out to you in this regard that you read them and you went, oh my goodness, this is completely you know, counter to previous readings of these publications. Yeah, so Samuel Townsend, uh, he was a printer at Carlisle and he was the first editor of its student newspaper, The School News. Um, he wrote a number of editorials that are, uh, are reprinted in the collection and he would, uh, again, like take up the, the some of this language um, challenging the notion that Native Americans are uncivilized, that they are, you know, inferior to whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time that he's doing that, you know, there there are moments when he relies on some of, of Pratt's rhetoric. You can kind of hear that uh, in his writing. But I think ultimately he's he's trying to challenge uh, white stereotypes of Native Americans and is effective in doing so and using the newspaper as a platform for doing for doing hmm. that. Another writer and editor who stands out is Arizona Jackson. She was one of the founders of the Holocaust printed at the Seneca Indian School. And that newspaper was launched in, 18, um, in 1879. Um, so it predates the school news. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of her letters, she had written a letter to a benefactor, which was common. Students often wrote letters to benefactors. But in her letter, she writes about her experiences as a college student. So she was attending Earlham College at the time, but still um, working as an editor of the school newspaper um, back in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And she writes about students um, from the college seeking out the Indian girl and wanting to know about the Indian girl. Mm. Um, and she goes on to say how much, well, can I read just a little? Uh, that would be great. Yes, please. Okay. She talks about um, earning grades in the mid 80s and the 90s. Um, and she represents herself as a, sex, as a successful college student. She authorizes herself as a model student from the perspective of school authorities. And this goes back to your earlier question. Why would, why would school authorities give students the opportunity to publish uh, in these newspapers or to edit them? Mm-hmm. Um, and so she represents herself as a model student from their perspective, civilized, adept at writing in English and articulate, and suggests that her physical presence at Earlham College challenges existing stereotypes of Indians as uneducable and uncivilized. And she writes, I found out that after I'd been here a day, the first of last term, whenever a student came, the first thing they sought was the Indian girl. Some of the girls came and asked me where she was and seemed to be surprised when I told them that I was the Indian girl. That shows that they saw me different from what they expected. So many that know nothing of Indians can't think of them in any other way than being savages, uncivilized, and anything but the right thing. And so I read this letter um, as 
Jackson's interest in redefining what it meant to be a young Native American woman um, and what it meant to be an educated Native American woman and and challenging some of these these stereotypes. Um, I don't know how the letter ended up (laughs) in the in the issue of um, the Carlisle the Carlisle newspaper. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether. the benefactor had, you know, sent the letter to Pratt or what, what, or, or Jackson herself, but uh, it does stand out. And it was one of those um, discoveries in during the research process that um, sort of made my day. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. Here was, here was a young woman who was, I was deeply interested in because she was this uh, founding editor and printer of um, a boarding her boarding school newspaper. And then she's writing this, this letter in a Carlisle public that appears in a, pub, a Carlisle publication. Well, I have to say, I loved Arizona Jackson's uh, portions of the book. She was one of my favorite characters that sort of stood out to me, but you know, the example of Arizona Jackson and also Samuel Townsend, I mean, they really sort of speak to the complexity of the environments that these students were operating in, you know, both during their education and after. And yeah, I think one of the things I really liked about this book was that, um, you know, you really sort of take on this complexity and you, you know, challenge uh, this, the existence of an assimilation resistance binary, which, you know, you say is largely dominated scholarship on boarding school narratives. And so, you know, in addition to, you know, these particular writings, I mean, how, how else would you say that, that that particular binary is really challenged by the work that you discovered over the course of putting this collection together? I hope that it's going to encourage students and scholars to take a second look and a closer look at these writings. And certainly I'm not the first, right, to, to challenge this binary mm-hmm. uh, and, to, and to suggest that uh, boarding school students were not passive victims, but were agents, right, and, right. and exerted their agency in multiple ways. But the fact that uh, there is this newspaper archive, I think, is remarkable, Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned and you you um, kind of just spoke to that a little bit that s- scholars have been slow to embrace boarding school newspapers as part of the broader canon of Native American literature, mm-hmm. and you know a part of that you may have already answered about you know whether assuming that it was just assimilationist rhetoric that was being shared by these students, but you know why if you could speak a little bit more about why you think these these writings have not really been, you know, examined very closely before and why you think that they're really an important part of Native American literature. One of the reasons is that there is a privileging of the book in Native American literary studies. Um, and so uh, that's starting to change and um, scholars are beginning to embrace periodicals Mm-hmm. Native American literary studies. I'm thinking here of um, the recent work done by Carrie Carpenter and Carolyn Cericcio on um, Sarah Wynn and Mucka Hopkins. Mm, okay. The privileging of the book um, is one of those, is one of the reasons. But I also think, again, scholars have 
you know, been, been reluctant to take up these newspapers because they've looked at them as, um, vehicles for the assimilationist aims mm. of the boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly they were, um, propaganda in a lot of ways, but that's not all that they were. Mm-hmm. Um, school authorities, again, wanted to publish native writings, specifically boarding school student writings mm-hmm. to, to serve as, as proof of the, the power of their, the, the success of their schools. But that's, that's not it. That's not all. That's not the full, the full story. Sure. Sure. What do you think they contribute overall to sort of the canon of native American literature? I think they allow us to look at some of the, the parallels um, and trace some of those parallels, but also some of the divergences between boarding school narratives that were published, um, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as well as more contemporary Native American works um, that explore the legacy of the boarding school. So, for instance, Sherman Alexie's The Absolutely True Diary of mm-hmm. a Part-Time Indian, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, invokes the boarding school legacy and the Carlisle Indian School specifically um, by putting some of these um, the writings in the collection and dialogue with a text like that that's widely known mm-hmm. and read. I think it can enhance um, readers' understanding of the boarding school experience and why it pers- why that legacy persists. Why why a writer like Alexi or like Louise Erdrich uh, is returning to this theme mm-hmm. um, in their in their work. So maybe a more holistic understanding picture. Of- I think so. I mean. Uh, I, every spring, I teach a course on Native American literature. Most of the students who take my course have had very little to no exposure to Native American literature. And uh, I open the course with Alexi's young adult novel and use that as a, as a starting place, as a, as a framing device to get into this history. And students are often surprised that there were these boarding schools. They had no idea that they existed. In fact, I had no idea that they existed until I was in graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we can do a lot more to bring attention to this part of our history. And um, certainly this, uh, you know, this theme, this legacy in Native American literature so are these writings, are these things that you include when you teach Native American literature? And how do you integrate, um, if you do if you do integrate them, how do you integrate them into um, your syllabus or into, you know, overall how you're teaching Native American literature? So I've taught uh, excerpts uh, from the book in my classes, and I use them as a way to give students some historical context. Okay. Um, but also context for understanding a writer like Sherman Alexie, um, and why he's dramatizing in his, in his novel, this, um, 
you know, interaction between a white teacher, Mr. P, and this young uh, Native student. I, uh, I intend to teach the entire book, and I'm re- revising my syllabus for the spring semester. Mm. I want to focus on the boarding school. So in the past, I've, I've, be- I've taught coming-of-age narratives in my Native American literature course. Okay. Um, and so I followed up Alex- Alexi with Zikala Shah's autobiographical essays uh, on her boarding school experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this coming semester, um, I haven't quite figured, figured out the syllabus, mm-hmm. um, but my plan is to focus specifically on the boarding school experience because I think there's um, more that I can do than I have done in the past. Mm. Um, it's been, it's been a, a focus, a focus of the, of the course, but um, I, I'd like to dig deeper into, into it uh, and have students gain a, a deeper understanding of the complexities. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the excerpts that I taught last spring was um Zikalish, the excerpts from Zikala Shah's autobiographical essays that were print, reprinted in The Red Man. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted students to see how her writings were, um, were misrepresented in The Red Man and uh, to give them some context over how difficult it was for a writer like Zikala, even someone like Zikala Shah mm-hmm. uh, to be published in the boarding school papers and to have her, her writing, uh, represented with integrity. Right. Right. Because it was, it was, you know, there were parts of it that were omitted and, um, and there were no, no notes, um, no editorial notes to, to suggest that that had happened. Oh, interesting. And when you've taught excerpts from the book and, or use some of these essays, how do students respond? I mean, do they feel, you know, a connection, you know, to these students, to these writings, you know, maybe through partially being the same age or just also being students? I mean, do you find that to be an effective way to teach about these schools? I do. I find that students um, in my classes are, uh, they have a very um, developed sense of racial injustice. Um, but the, the challenge is to get them to understand the injustices done to native Americans. Mm. So, um, you know, they, they can see, um, connections to black lives matter, Mm -hmm. um, you know, current, current movements, um, like that, uh, in the black, in the black community. Um, but when it comes to native Americans, they, again, they don't have a lot of, a lot of knowledge, a lot of background, his, um, background knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I do in that class is just give them, um, some, some context, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some ways to see, um, you know the te- the the issues that Zikala Shah and Charles Eastman and the, the the students featured in 
the collection, those issues that they were working out um, in their writings pertain to um, and are in dialogue with some of the same issues that um, Black public intellectuals of the period were hashing out in their writing. So I try to make like cross-cultural um, connections as much as I can and find that that helps students begin to understand what, what um, Native American writers were up against, uh, why they were taking on these issues, why they were so often writing about education, for instance, mm-hmm. in, their, in their respective works. So it sounds like you do a lot of history teaching as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the context is important, you know, and if they don't have that context, I can see how that would be, that would be necessary. You know, something you'd have to spend a lot of time on. Absolutely. So in terms of the book itself, I'm always really interested in how authors put their books together. And in this case, um, you have assembled so many different writings and you have gone into archives that are often incomplete. And I'm curious, you know, what was your methodology in assembling these writings, how you chose them, why, uh, what challenges you faced in collecting and gathering all of these primary sources. If you could talk about that, that would be, that would be great. Sure. So I mined roughly 15 boarding school newspapers, but ended up using about 12 of them. So I had to rule a few out um, in part because I couldn't access them. Um, uh, they no longer exist, or if they do exist, they exist in a very limited form. Mm. Um, I was also looking in, in terms of choosing the students I wanted to feature in the collection. I looked specifically for students who, um, were editors or contributed multiple writings, um, and substantive writings. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I ruled out like, uh, you know, very short compositions of, of a paragraph or two, unless it was something that I thought was, was really interesting. And, uh, I really, from the beginning, I wanted to represent a diversity of forms. So I knew that I wanted to include editorials and essays and short stories One of the challenges, again, was just accessing these um, archives and the heartbreak (laughs) that I still feel. And so every visit I would have with the archives was sometimes difficult because they would, they they literally crumble in my hand. Oh, goodness. So a lot of these items are not well-preserved either. They're they're not. And if they do, if they, if they have been, I think we're, you know, I think we're fortunate for mm-hmm. the ones that have been preserved, but, but they, uh, some of them are in, in desperate need of, of being digitized or, mm-hmm. or something because I, I fear, um, that they could be lost sure. forever. Where, uh, which archives did you visit to find these sources? Because it's, I know the, the boarding schools themselves don't have archives and sometimes it's at, you know, national archives. So where did you, where did you end up finding a lot of these items? 
I did a lot of my research at the New York Public Library. The New York Public Library, the main branch, has one of the most comprehensive runs of talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it also has a number of other uh, Carlisle publications. So I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to visit the New York Public Library at uh, when I started the project, I was living in Philadelphia, and now I live in the city. Mm. Um, I also made a trip to Carlisle and went to the Historical Society, um, and I did some research uh, there. Um, and then at the uh, Anthropology Library in Washington, D.C., those were my three main uh, archives that I, that I visited in person. Mm -hmm. And then I, um, utilized the archives at the, uh, Oklahoma Historical Society. Yeah. Those were the, those were the main ones. For the most part, I was able to successfully get my hands on the writings that I wanted. There were some along the way that I just could not, could not get, a hold of um, some of the earlier issues of Talks and Thoughts, for instance, um, the ones in which Angel Decora edited while she was a student at Hampton Institute. Uh, to my knowledge, those early issues have not been preserved. Oh, gosh, that's such a shame, too, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But we're lucky that we have all these sources together now in your book, Absolutely. which is an amazing resource. Now, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about the process of revising your dissertation into a book. How does that work? How did that work for you? I used some of the content from the introduction and the first chapter of my dissertation for the first, for the introduction to the book. The second chapter of my dissertation was on talks and thoughts of the Hampton Indian students mm -hmm. and the school news. I forgot to say that earlier. Yep, sure. Um, and so what I did was I used, I used my research for the dissertation specifically on those two, um, the two student edited periodicals as like a jumping off place for the book. Uh, I went back and I looked for additional writers who I could feature. Um, and um, my research for the dissertation also helped in the sense that I had familiarized myself with the white edited newspapers, uh, namely those published at Hampton and Carlisle. And so um, I knew some of the the prominent literary figures who were featured in those newspapers. And then I, I also started to look for students as well. How long does that process take? I don't like to think about it. Um, <laughs> I think that says enough right there. <laughs> yeah, it, was a, it was a long process. <laughs> and, you know, I was teaching and so I wasn't working steadily, mm -hmm. but using whatever, whatever moments I could um, to conduct the research and to transcribe and, um, you know, figure out, figure out which, which writers I wanted to mm -hmm. include. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I have just one more question before I let you go. Um, you know, with regard to the book, you know, and you talked a little bit about the sources that you were unable to use for the, this particular project. How do you hope that students and scholars might build upon your work and what sorts of future projects do you hope um, might come out of this collection that you have published? Well, my hope is that the collection will encourage further scholarly investigation into boarding school newspapers and other Native American uh, periodical archives. I'd like to see these newspapers preserved and accessible mm -hmm. in a digital format. That'd be great. Um, one of my next projects in the spring is to participate in a digital poster session at the American Antiquarian Society. Oh. And so I want to highlight uh, the Holoqua and um, share, share my research um, with um, other scholars, periodical scholars who are, who are working with um, ethnic, mm -hmm. ethnic newspapers. Excellent. Well, Jacqueline, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Jacqueline Emery's book, Recovering Native American Writings in the Boarding School Press, is published by the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you.